Greetings and welcome to the Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, I'm seizing on the opportunity that the crisis of the pandemic has provided us to record a class discussion among my students at the Kennedy School in Berlin of a talk I recorded on the podcast just a few days ago. The talk is called The One China Myth, Xinjiang, Tibet, and Hong Kong, and it explores China's long struggle for internal sovereignty. And despite the PRC claims of being Zhongo Ren, or Chinese people with universal values, China is this really fragmented society. And to illustrate this fragmentation, that lecture dives into China's long struggles with Xinjiang, Tibet, and Hong Kong. If you don't know about that struggle, listening to that lecture in advance of this conversation might be appropriate, if not necessary. If you have listened to that lecture, my hope is that you really want to hear more about it. You want to hear some discussion of it. And of course, my hope is that my students are coming to this session desperately hoping to process and further engage what they've learned. So let's do just that. And maybe we should start here, as general and vague as it might be. Would each of you in turn be willing to talk a bit about what you found most interesting or most compelling about the podcast lecture I gave? I found it really interesting just sort of the history that China has with the SARs and how it's the technique that it's used to try and control Xinjiang and Tibet were sort of the same with China like going in and developing and how and how they think that that type of extra economic growth is going to win them loyalty. Right. And then on the other side of that, sort of the regions themselves and the people that are being often oppressed and suppressed within them. It's almost like, what's the syndrome where you like, like your captor? It's where they are dependent. Exactly. Stockholm syndrome, where they like enjoy, they enjoy the economic development. Of course, like I'm not faulting at all you know, people for enjoying development and infrastructure and stuff like that. I think that conundrum is really interesting. Yeah, the foreign involvement, I think, is really fascinating. Because on the one hand, you do have some form of foreign involvement. Like, as soon as, like, the mistreatment of locals begins by the Chinese government, the West is kind of silent, right? So it's sort of like they're involved and they, like, they're, they clearly know what's going on. But in an actual geopolitical sense, they're not really doing anything about the human rights violations? I thought it was very interesting the way you showed the number of new security facilities in Xinjiang. Like it was a very concrete way of sort of grasping how much of a increase in security there was before. And it was more sort of up in the air and I guess um, a bit more theoretical to me. Like having, I guess, actual data of that seems very fascinating. Yeah, I totally agree. And um I think their policy, uh, their notion that Chinese people have this universal value, that's something that they've been trying to promote to, um, I guess, appear unified. And I do get that. Um, but that I think that notion would have to take a hit in order for them to really acknowledge 
that they are an extremely diverse society and you can't keep ruling with an iron fist as if you are homogenous. One thing that, that I find really interesting is kind of the honification of these areas. I think China, as you say, sees, especially in Urumqi and Shen in Xinjiang, sees that capital as kind of, or it is the center of Asia, like the geographical center. And they, they want that as kind of like a trade destination or like a, a place between the, the West um, and the East. I find it interesting that they're sending all these ethnically Han Chinese people uh, there to set up kind of shop and work there and really have a more of an influence in this area that was historically much less uh, Han and now is almost 40% Han. So there's two factors that influence that. And the first is there's so many Han coming in that the numbers go down in relation to the amount of Han compared to the amount of Uyghur. Um, but also this repression that we were talking about of the Uyghur population specifically with all these um, security facilities or these detention centers that really are reducing the population of the Uyghurs in Urumqi, but also all of Xinjiang. I suppose the thing that I found most interesting was the sort of two systems, one country principle that you talked about, like in Hong Kong specifically, but also just in general, how the party or the state experiments with different forms of governance within their own country. And how they're able to do that because of the system and its long-term, you know, setup. Well, and it makes sense to do so when you govern one-fifth of the world's population, right? There's probably room for such experimentation when you have such diversity and such a complicated political history, which we in the West tend to oversimplify by calling it this place called China. And I'm curious as to how you think the effort to promote Chinese people with universal values complicates your understanding of politics and of policy in the People's Republic of China. I think for me, it doesn't complicate it. It actually clarifies it. And I can understand how they're trying to unifies such a diverse country and then that's why they're using such a heavy hand. I think it sort of, it, it helps me really understand the Chinese government and what they're aiming for. I think, you know, the United Chinese people have sort of two aspects which are supposed to unite them, like I, their identity and their history. And I think when it comes to their history, of course, because China has already been attempting to unite for so long through the Cultural Revolution and stuff, they do have, you know, certain fears and ideals that come from the history that they all experience. So I think in that sense, it makes sense that the Chinese people would sort of be united. But in terms of identity, you know, China is much more diverse than we give it credit for. And to act like the experience of a Uyghur Muslim and, you know, a Han Chinese person are the same is, is perhaps a little too reductive. Most, if not all, Chinese, and by that I, I mean Han and also non-Han, so the minority groups within um, the Chinese empire, really, would be their development. And I think that's part of their identity. And I think the Chinese government kind of wants that to be their identity, kind of in, in the sense that as long as there is this massive development, that the people should be happy with what they get. 
And that is almost what connects all Chinese. Even in, in Tibet, where we see the highest poverty rate in, in China and uh, two times higher mort- infant mortality rate than the rest of China, they have this massive development at the, at the same time. So I think the Chinese government, even though they're not really investing in these preventative measures, they're hoping that the development will make up for those um, failures, really. I'm not so sure if I agree with that because, yes, obviously, China's developing at a very, very fast rate, and it's quite impressive, but they disproportionately benefit from this development. And I think that's more of a cleavage than it would be something that unifies them. Um, I'd say it's hard to gauge, really, um, if this development really can. I mean, of, of, of course, I get your point that not all Chinese enjoy and not all minorities, especially the minorities, enjoy the same development as um, Han Chinese do. But I would say that most Chinese are connected in the idea of development. That is the from what I've heard, is really the idea behind China itself, currently as it stands. The Uyghurs have experienced a definite improvement in their lives as compared to before the investment of of Chinese new money in uh, Xinjiang and Urumqi. I think that's that's true. I mean, I think a lot of their success until now actually has been, you know, in part as a result of the government having power over so many people because they mobilize these massive forces of human labor to get things done. And that's, it's not necessarily a sustainable system to just use people. To that, I wholeheartedly agree with the sentiment that it's, it's drastically being understated. But what I find especially interesting about it is that to most people in the West, beyond just it seeming like like an absolute travesty, it also seems sort of like unstable, which is the Chinese government's whole mantra. It seems like this can't last, right? Eventually, if you have these mounting tensions, then something's going to explode. But that doesn't really fit with what we know about the Chinese government and it being like this hyper-rational construct. So what I find interesting is that perhaps if we do accept the Chinese government as being so rational, then maybe this like extreme oppression of these people is actually the best way to perpetuate their government, which which seems crazy to me. I mean, to say that the Chinese government is more strategic and pragmatic than perhaps any other is probably correct. But to say that that doesn't mean that they make mistakes that may be of like the human rights nature, you know, and regardless of whether it's a strategic mistake, which I think is less important than, you know, the millions that are dying. You probably agree with me about that. That doesn't mean that it won't come to a head at some point. Like Tiananmen Square was also some sort of explosion, right? Like there was backlash, there was building tensions. It's not as though the Chinese government failing on the human rights front hasn't led to like a big uprising and a sort of big problem for them. I'm inclined to agree with you, but what you said, you point out Tiananmen Square, and yes, there was that protest and that tragedy, but from what I've heard, I mean, most young Chinese people don't know about Tiananmen Square now. It's been, the information has been completely repressed by the Chinese government. So if you say that that was an explosion of dissent against the Communist Party and the government, Yes, it was, but that didn't 
I don't feel like it created that lasting change because it's been completely suppressed. The history of that has been completely suppressed within China. So, I mean, I hope that what they're doing to the Uyghurs will come and like hurt the government. But I'm, if you're taking the Tiananmen Square model, I feel like, yes, it could, but then they could just repress it again because the government has so much power and censorship. So I am not expressly disagreeing with that, but I do think we might be reducing the issue of an ethnic cleansing in China a little bit too much. And I think when we're viewing China, we tend to think of it as some sort of nebulous thing and don't maybe empathize with the Uyghur Muslims enough and and realize that their struggle is is actually very important. I think one of the things about China's dealing with diversity is not to have it. And so then to avoid all the problems that might spring from it, like cumulative cleavages or like ethnic tensions. And so the goal is to assimilate or abolish the ethnic groups that are not like the non-Han groups, essentially. And I think China is very strict with its sort of unification and centralization in every aspect of life, including culture. I also just wanted to say that it might be hard to judge the amount of dissent that's currently happening and the amount of this dissent that is going to happen because it doesn't necessarily get much of our attention regardless. I mean, we don't know. And the Chinese government does not want us to know what we're talking about here. So I think it's hard to, you know, debate the future of dissent in China because we don't really understand the the extent of of dissent in China. You know, the Chinese government really does probably want to avoid something like another Tiananmen Square. And, you know, how could the PRC like more effectively cope with diversity, with China's cumulative cleavages and, you know, with the pretty profound relative deprivation that they have going on? I really don't know, because like you said earlier, we don't know much about the extent to which there is dissent in China, mainly due to like the Chinese government trying to repress that information. So, I mean, clearly not the way they're dealing with it right now. My guess would be that they will just try and keep developing all the areas that are currently like underdeveloped, like they're doing in Tibet and Xinjiang right now. I think they're going to have to do a lot more than that if they want to be more successful in the future. Yeah, I agree. I think if like we're looking at a long-term sustainability plan or a sustainable plan for stability in China, then I think there's really only two options for the Chinese government. They either have to start making concessions to the oppressed demographics in China uh, or erase the whole diversity uh, in general. But I think like that's is a lot harder than, you know, to just, I don't know, move Han people to Xinjiang. Like we can, we can already see what they're doing with the Huyghur people, like how violent, like how much government force they need just to enforce this united China. It's sort of like a state mandated nationalism to seek to like, like make the country more stable and whether or not that's going to work, I'm not sure, but that seems to be the course they're going with. And I, I think that like intrinsically that that will, result in this at least at best government overreach and at worst what we're seeing right now which is insane levels of violence and and state oppression i think it's interesting that both of you brought up you know erasing diversity um 
And I think I know what you mean by that. But also, I'm not convinced that that's a thing they could do. I've never heard of that working before, ever. And maybe I'm wrong. But when you have differences in ethnicity among a population, as well as differences in religion, I don't think that anything China has done so far would come anywhere near sort of snuffing out diversity in China. They're trying to maybe silence the diversity or the, you know, the minorities, if that's what you mean. But I don't think eliminating the diversity is a sustainable path at all. I mean, to be clear, none of the speakers have advocated for eliminating diversity, but I think there seems to be a fear perhaps rightfully so, among some in the room, that China is likely to continue on that path of what we might call ethnic cleansing. I can understand why one would think that getting rid of diversity seems like an integral part of their their plan for the future. And to a certain extent, I would say it is, but not fully. I think part of it is a mask of this right unified country, but I think the diversity is also necessary to the Chinese party to have a sense of Han superiority. Like, I understand the impulse to presume what China is likely to do, as dark as that may be. But let's assume for a moment that China can be more effective. How can they be more effective? If that's their goal, right, if they want to be more effective in being inclusive and being proud of their diversity within their nation, they would simply just have to stop repressing the minorities, the Tibetans, the Uyghurs, and other people with different ideologies. So that would be Hong Kong. Because clearly they are diverse. I mean, just if you look at their political system or their economic system, they, they aren't communist and they aren't capitalist. There's something in between. They're combining different things. They're trying to be a diverse system that combines different ideas so that they get the best out of it. So why can't they apply that same mentality when they, when it comes to uh, the people of their country? I, I agree with both of you. The only truly sustainable method is to try to reduce disparity. But the challenge that I see is with such a strong state, I don't know who can make China do it. They have to decide to on their own to maintain the advantages of being Han. It's most advantageous for them. So I find it hard to believe that without, you know, an extreme increase in pressure that the Chinese government's going to take any of these steps, really. And so I think we might have a situation where China is going to face a lot more opposition in the future with, you know, a growing population of minorities who are growing probably more dissatisfied over time and whose concerns are just not going to be addressed. Well, with that prediction about the future of Chinese politics and culture in mind, I want to begin to drive this train into the station, but not without stopping to offer you opportunities to compare this particular set of ideas with some of the problems we see in other AP countries that we have studied thus far. So, from the most banal and predictable to the most complex and complicated, can we do a lightning round of comparisons to other AP CompGov countries? Yeah, I mean, in terms of comparison, I think both the United Kingdom and Russia sort of have their aspects that can be reflected in China. With Russia, I think the main connection there is just the size 
Um, China and Russia are both very big and have very diverse populations. But I think that struggle for national unity is something that you can definitely see in, in Russia as well. You know, under Putin, you have the, like this new nationalism that's very similar to the Chinese nationalism in a sense of uniting Russia and uh, uniting China. I think that's uh, sort of reflective, um, though, to my knowledge, Russia is not currently engaging in a genocide to sort of fix that. But I think I think that sort of struggle, especially like in terms of the size of getting people feeling like they're part of a real country rather than just like sort of a spread out empire. Um, I think that struggle exists in Russia as well. I see quite a connection between Russia and China regarding economic development in the sense that both countries, they were underdeveloped, neither of them properly industrialized and then had to struggle with that over the course of the 20th century. And it's part of why both countries turned to communism um, and have developed from there. I think the, the comparison ends when you look at the Chinese versus Russian economies today. I would say one of the more generous views of China is comparing it to the UK in that, you know, it's evolved over time. The idea, which I will vehemently deny in our debate later, but which I'm saying now is that, you know, hopefully a democracy could spring out of China through evolution and through prosperity. I mean, it's happening like the UK, but in a really big, big way. So, you know, maybe if if things are allowed to run their course, China will end up in a, in a place like the Western world. But I mean, we can expect that, but I think it's possible. Mine goes hand in hand with the aforementioned economic development. I think both countries strive for stability by the means of economic stability, right? So you have the GDP growth with Putin in Russia, and then you have an insane economic growth rate in China, which is what they're dependent on for legitimacy and stability. Well, I know this isn't a perfect comparison, but when we were talking about, or when you were talking about in your lecture, this kind of separation of powers that Hong Kong has and mainland China has, I couldn't help but kind of think into the devolution of powers in the UK. Um, I know the political systems are definitely different, but yeah, that was a comparison that I thought of. One challenging, but in some ways low-hanging fruit comparison I'd like to draw is to English incursion into Northern Ireland and the effort to fundamentally change the culture in the six counties of Ulster. And if you recall the violence, the bloodshed of the so-called troubles, perhaps it's quaint in that it's in the past, but it wasn't quaint at all. There was one comparison that I enjoyed to devolution vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong. The Northern Ireland problem is interesting in this regard. I think one can draw a good comparison between East Turkestan and Chechnya um, and the various regions that Russia is forcefully oppressing and like maintaining as a part of the Federation. That seems like a pretty interesting and apt comparison to me. It does, and it is, and me too. One more lightning round in 20 seconds or less. What, my friends, is the big takeaway we should want for our listeners from this lecture and conversation? And that might be, what is your biggest takeaway? Well, I felt like this lecture and our discussion this morning really highlighted this question about whether the lack of political reforms and the mistreatment of China's minorities will continue to be or will be tolerated enough so long as 
China continues to grow economically. We kept talking about, well, these regions are being oppressed, but their development, their GDP soared, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, that was a question that I found myself thinking about throughout the entire discussion. This is probably cheesy and the obvious one because it's said a lot, but I do think it's very important because um, I think a lot of us find ourselves still doing this is to really take off or like Western glasses and lenses when we look at China because it's a whole different, like its history is so rich and complex. And I think you've mentioned this before that we often kind of discredit it or kind of reduce it in a way that's not beneficial to how we should be viewing China. In that vein, I think for me, the big takeaway from like this lecture and this discussion was the history of China. Most people so fundamentally misunderstand it in the West and that there is a lot more ethnic diversity in China than I realized. And that that's um, a big motivating factor for the Chinese government, like economically and regarding what they're doing in Xinjiang with the detention camps. You know, I think sometimes we view China just fundamentally incorrectly. We either idealize it or more often we demonize it. What you can really learn in a, in a comparative government class about a country like China is that, you know, a lot of what goes on echoes other crises we've dealt with around the world. And it has a lot of prospects to, you know, resemble Russia or the UK in the future. And, you know, it's not forsaken either way. Well, I'm glad that the lecture and our discussion could help us all to appreciate that China is not just big and it's not just increasingly powerful, but that it's rich in its culture, it's rich in its diversity, and that presents, as they say, both crises and opportunities. And I'm heartened to hear at least some of you being willing to reach out a hand of hope as we know, history isn't destiny. And while I could name some of them here, there are some countries with which we're very familiar who engaged in some of the most despotic, inhumane, and yes, genocidal acts. And they have become, in many ways, global leaders in human rights. That is not impossible for China. And so it's with that hope that we'll conclude this conversation and we'll look forward to the next one.